Well, if you guys read a little bit ahead this morning, you may have, uh, you kind of have a jump on me, but there's a story from history that I just find, well, it's super convicting. It's a story about a guy by the name of Philip. His last name is Samuel Weiss, I believe, but I'm not great at name pronunciations, so I may not have that one right. But, but Philip actually practiced in an era of medicine where things were, were more practice than they were science and where the challenges that faced the modern medical community at that time were pretty large. In fact, he started into obstetrics at a period of time when one in six women died when, she, when they came to the hospital. Imagine that. One in six women who had complications with delivery would die before they left the hospital. Philip fell into a role, as many of them do, a daily routine where they would do autopsies early in the morning on the women who had deceased, and then they would do their rounds and attending to all the patients and delivering all the babies throughout the day. And he began to ask the question, why? Why are we losing so many women? These women come in and they're dealing with complications of pregnancy, but they're otherwise healthy women, and yet at the end of that period of time and they're in the hospital, they generally come down with an infection, oftentimes claim their life. And Philip began to do a radical new procedure, a practice that none had done before. He got a bowl full of water, mixed a slight amount of chlorine solution in it, and washed his hands. He washed his hands after doing the autopsies. He also washed his hands in between visiting each and every patient. And he kept meticulous records of his time before and after doing this radical new procedure of hand washing. And what he found out is in an 11-year time that he kept records, he brought into this world 8,537 babies. And of those 8,537 deliveries, he only lost 184 mothers. In a world where it was one in six mothers died in delivering in the hospital, his odds in the very same hospital, in the very same world, were one in 50 and he became a man who was preaching this, the doctrine of hand washing to the world. But the world was very resistant. I don't know what it is about human nature, but there's just something about us that when somebody comes up and they tell us you're doing something wrong and there's a better way to do it, there's just something about most of us where we say, I don't care, I'm doing it the way I've always done it. This is the way that we've always done things. This works for other people. It works for me. We are not good at being told we're not doing something right. In fact, Philip would become this passionate spokesman for hand washing. And in the middle of a speech, this is what he said. He said, but while we talk, 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 gentlemen, women are dying I'm not asking for anything world-shaking. I'm just asking that you wash. For God's sake, wash your hands. He would die at like 52 years old. And after Philip died, all the wash basins placed in the delivery rooms were set aside. And everyone went back to doing everything like they had always done everything before. I know it's easy for us to look at those people and say, what a bunch of idiots, right? What were wrong with those people? Because we know today exactly what Philip assumed in his generation. He didn't have the science or the tools to be able to put names to it and explain processes, but he had figured out that pathogens were somehow traveling from the chronic dying bodies of women who had passed away, and he was somehow delivering those to otherwise healthy women, and by washing his hands, he could stop that process Today we understand why. He just understood what. But the world refuses to listen. Today I think oftentimes we're quick to pass judgment on a generation of doctors. But I think that some ways we're also failing in this area. Because I don't think we can fully appreciate the damage of our spiritual dirtiness, our bad spiritual hygiene. 
We, we, we say things like, you know what, it's just hurting me or it's just my decision. This is a private battle of mine. No one else is affected by the consequences of what I'm doing with my life. And we couldn't be any more wrong. Now, I can't tell you this morning the reasons why because God does, doesn't, hasn't necessarily revealed all those to us, but we affect one another. And as the Apostle Paul opens up Ephesians, the fifth chapter, he begins to go into, into a conversation of talking about how important it is that we are spiritually set apart, that we are spiritually clean. If you have your Bibles this morning, grab those, turn with me, Ephesians, the fifth chapter. We're going to read a chunk of Scripture right here this morning because really it's kind of what we have to do to, to, to be fair to the Scripture. Um, and then we'll come back afterwards and we'll kind of talk about some of the sections of that Scripture. Ephesians 5, verse number 1, begins with these words, therefore. Paul has used therefore now various times throughout this text. He's reminding us, building on everything that we know, therefore, therefore, therefore. Another therefore, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us, and he gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time, you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when everything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, wake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. And therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs, singing and making melody to your heart, to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence. For God. I suppose if we had wanted to this morning, we could probably start and finish the sermon how Paul starts Ephesians, the fifth chapter, and verse one. Because Paul begins this powerful conversation with simple idea. He said, I want you to be imitators of God. I want you to. Kind of shape your life, not after the people that are around you in church or whatever your idea coming up was of what a spiritual person looks like. Paul said, I want you to shape your idea of what a Christian is by looking at our Heavenly Father. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly beloved children. For Paul, this was a natural extension that God's children would look like God the Father. And he he goes one step farther. He doesn't just kind of give us that commandment. Like I said, if we were all perfect this morning, we could just say that, all right, you guys go out and grab Sunday lunch, imitate God, and, uh, and we'd be good to go. But I think that probably all of us recognize today that while we understand the concept that the Apostle Paul is laying out, that's a lot harder in practice than it, does, than it sounds like in speech. He lays out two reminders before he jumps into the meat of what he's about to tell us. And the first one is this. He said that we are to walk as children of God and to walk in love. It's been the whole message of the book of Ephesians. The apostle Paul will punch back in time and time again with this idea. Hey, guys, remember, this is about walking in love. This is about walking in love. This is about walking in love. And he does that here again as he begins the first part of, of, of Ephesians 5 and verse 1. He says, hey, we're about walking in love. That's what we're called to do. And, and maybe
maybe I'll just take a moment to point out this morning that, that the word that's translated love there, you guys have heard this a million times, I'm sure, but in Greek, they, they have various words for love, right? They have agape love, phileo love, brotherly love. They have eros love, kind of erotic sort of love. They had several different category, categories of love. Very seldom did the culture, the secular culture, use the form of love that's mentioned here in this text. It was agape love, and it's a self-sacrificing kind of love. It was the kind of love that the culture, the worldly people, would only use in relationship between a child and a parent or a parent and a child. It was that kind of love that, that goes above and beyond and sacrifices of one's own personal safety and own personal good so that the others might be pushed forward. And that's the word that Paul chooses to use here. He said, I want you to walk in agape. Why? Well, because God first walked in agape, walked in love toward us. And he builds on that, and he calls us to give up. Now, I know some of us don't have the kind of uh, temperament that gives up much, right? But that's what he says. Notice he says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us which was a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. As God's children and as members of his family, we're called to work every day to deny our own selfish nature and our own selfish desires and kind of what naturally comes in putting us forward and begin to ask ourselves a question, how can my life benefit other people? rather than how can other people's lives benefit me. It's natural for us to think that way. But Paul isn't the only guy that has this message in Scripture, right? Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 1 and verse 22. He says, you were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth, so now you must show a sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. Peter here is kind of building on the same idea that Paul is, and that is that church is not supposed to be some kind of a loose collection of people kind of revolving around a, a, a social organization, but it's, it's to be a family, and we look at each other as brothers and sisters, and we're to be concerned how we and our behaviors and our needs and our desires affect the people that are around us. This is all the backdrop for where Paul goes next in this text. Because Paul kind of makes a hard break, doesn't he? Starts off as dearly beloved children, be imitators of God, and, and walk in love as Christ walked in love and gave himself up for us. And then all of us can get behind that, and we're like, yeah, that's a great passage. But then it's like he drops this hammer in verse, in verse number three. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor court crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this, that anyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Paul goes from being very conversational and almost to kind of motivational to becoming really serious. And I think the reason why is that the Apostle Paul recognizes what Philip recognized about the human body when it comes to terms of spiritual things. Philip recognized that the cleanliness of our hands have a direct effect on how other people other people's health will turn out at the end of a procedure. And Paul realizes that some of the effects of our life have a very distinct impact on the people around us. And he picks three areas that are probably the three biggest areas where we affect and influence other people. If we're people that are not sexually pure, if we're people that, that are filled with greed and constantly looking for things that other people have, if we are people who fall into the trap of, of idolatry and we, our priorities are out of whack and we're putting other things ahead of God, we're sending a powerful message to people around us, right? If people look at our life and they see sexual immorality, if people look at our life and they see us greedily trying to get things just like everyone else in the world around us is trying to do and kind of participating in the greed economy, if people look at our priorities and how we live our life and they recognize that God is not at the top of that list, they're not really going to be interested in anything else that we say about God period. Those three items speak volumes about who we believe God is 
and how much we value the gift that we've been given in Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul says, I want you to walk as children of light. I want you to walk as children of God. But that starts with remaining pure. Making certain that our intentions, our motivations, the things that drive us are things that God would have drive us. Each of those words that are listed there, whether it be, whether it be sexual immorality or if we're talking about greed, greediness or covetousness, some of your Bibles translate that in probably two different ways. Or if, if we're talking about... Um, if we're talking about uh, any one of those, each of those have a kind of a Greek word that's connected with that. But I, I want to focus on one of them because I, I think that the sexual immorality word is a word that I think will stick with you. I could share all the Greek words with you guys and you'll forget them and I don't blame you. But the Greek, the Greek word for the sexual immorality is a word that's in Greek is pornea. It's the word that we get pornography from in our world today. When we look at this list, I think that probably most of us, it makes us somewhat uncomfortable. Because we, we look at the categories that are listed there, the sexual behaviors that the Bible calls sin. We look at the attitudes that seem just to be prevalent in the world. People are all kind of greedy, and we kind of want things that other people have. We, we kind of look at the priority structure of our life, and we're like, yeah, God isn't where he should be, but no one's living that way, right? And this makes us universally uncomfortable. And I think sometimes we, we maybe step back and say, well, you know, Paul is writing this to those people a long time ago. They don't live in the world where I live. So let me just pause today and tell you a little bit about the world that Paul is writing this letter to. It's written to the church in Ephesus. And if you know the story of the missionary journeys, Paul comes to Ephesus and he preaches gospel there and there's a radical transformation in a lot of people's lives. But Ephesus happened to be the home center of the worship cult or the worship of a goddess by the name of Artemis and the cult that followed her. And, and part of the worship of Artemis, because she was a, a fertility goddess in many ways and a, and a god of, of, of plants and things that grow, so part of the worship of this Artemis was temple prostitution. In fact, historians tell us that well over half, if not greater than half, of the populations of places like Ephesus and Rome were enslaved people. And the vast majority of those enslaved persons in the city of Ephesus were enslaved in temple prostitution and sex trade. Guys, Paul is not writing this to some scrubbed up, pretty culture. He's writing this to a church that's existing in a culture that is far darker than ours is today. And he's saying to that church, guys, there should not be a hint of sexual immorality among you guys. There should not be greed among you guys. There should be godly priorities, not idolatry among you guys. I know we're pretty sophisticated in this world today. We're good at hiding the pornea that permeates our society. Yeah, you can, it's not like in Ephesus where you're going to walk down the street and be solicited by young women who are enslaved to work at a temple to come in and worship doing sexual immor sexually immoral things. That's maybe not our world, but our world is maybe far more dangerous. I've been amazed lately just looking at updates to web browsers at how prominent of a place that secrecy is playing on these web browsers. I'm not talking about keeping your information uh, clear from people around us. I get that, right? But that you can, you can jump on a web browser and you can browse the web anonymously. Back in the old days, you, you kind of ran a risk whenever you jumped on the web and maybe went to a site that solicited pornography that... Maybe a cookie would be placed in your system or, or, or that someone would maybe come behind you and look at the history. But now, no, you're good. You can search the web and no one will ever know. And pornography is not just a problem with men. Some of you may be thinking this morning, that's a guy's problem and I don't need to pay attention. The fastest growing segment of pornography in the United States and in the world today is among women. Statistics tell us that almost 80% of men and young boys 
have been influenced by and struggled with at one point in their life or another with pornography, 80%. So if this makes you uncomfortable this morning, I'm sorry, I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but we got to have a conversation about sexual immorality because we're surrounded by it. And there's millions and millions and millions of dollars that are being made off of this. And I know we say, well, no one's getting hurt. And it's a, it's a victimless crime. But like Satan always does, he's lying to you. Because the biggest supporters of the online trafficking of young boys and girls in the world today are the people that are behind the creation of pornography. Everyone knows that. And I've seen sexual sin. I've seen greed. I've seen idolatry destroy some of my favorite people. People that would have said five, ten years before, I would never do that. What's wrong with people to do that? I would never walk away from, the God, from God. I would never put other things ahead of God. And yet, five or ten years later, they're doing the exact thing that they thought they would never do. Guys, please listen to me this morning. These three things have and can destroy your walk with God. A while ago, I had a young man come up and he was talking with me about churches. And he said, Jason, he said, what, what is the one thing that you think has damaged more churches than anything else? It didn't take me long because I've thought about that question a lot. I've been around ministry for quite a while now, longer than I care to admit. And one of the things that I've recognized that probably damages a church more than anything else are Christian people who don't walk as children of God. It destroys every credible witness of the church. You think right now this morning of the number of preachers that you've heard over the years, people like myself, that have found themselves neck deep in sexual sin, embezzlement caused by greed, or they've been trying to push forward an agenda for the church that is their priority but not God's. There's thousands of illustrations, and that's just people that fill my role. Those are people that are up front, that people feel like they can critique their life. We all know that throughout the pews and chairs of churches across America, it's an epidemic. Why are people not coming to the Lord? Could it be the same reason why Philip recognized that one in six women were dying in the beds of his hospital? That those of us who are Christ followers haven't realized how important it is to be clean. So Paul goes on in verse number nine. He says, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord and take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, expose them for it's shameful even to speak of things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. And if anything that becomes visible is light. The third thing that Paul says, if you want to walk as children of God, if you want to be children of God in this world, you've, you've got to deal with sexual sin and, and then you have to make the choice to walk in light. Jesus said this in, in John 8 and verse 12. He said, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will walk in the light of life. Guys, we, we, Jesus says this about the day after. Well, in fact, the day after the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And this was kind of a cool feast. I think of all the Jewish feasts, this was kind of a neat one because it was sort of a camping trip, right? All the people would leave the city and they would go out and they would camp in the Garden of Gethsemane and in the valleys around the city of Jerusalem. And they would have a week-long remembrance of what it was like for the 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness before God brought them to the Promised Land. It was kind of a, kind of a festival that helped them to be thankful for what God had provided for them. But on the last night of the Feast of Tabernacles, they would get these gigantic menorahs, and they held a ton of oil, and they would set them all up around on the Temple Mount, which is the highest point in Jerusalem, if you've never been there. And they would light these up as the sun was setting. And so as everyone is spending this last night on the family camping trip outside of the city of Jerusalem, as they looked toward the city of Jerusalem, they would see the temple illuminated up on the hill. And it was just a reminder of God's presence with his people. 
The next day, Jesus is teaching in the temple, and he uses that that historic occurrence to share these words. I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me does not walk in darkness. Guys, we desperately need people that kind of understand that what Jesus is talking about here is he's talking about people that walk into a world and they're not filled full of sexual sin. They're not dealing with greed and needing and wanting everything that the world has around them and getting sucked into that greed trap. These are not people that, whose priorities are off whack, but these are people who recognize God comes first, others second. They, they understand that we're to love God and love others. That's the call of Christianity. And they walk into a room. You guys want to know why Jesus was so loved by people? Jesus could walk down, sit in the middle of Zacchaeus, a tax collector's house, and in the middle of dinner, Zacchaeus stands up and says, hey, I'm going to be a radically changed guy, and Jesus never says anything. You know why? Because Jesus was different. He brought light. His very life illuminated in other people who they were, but even a greater way, what they wanted to be. He was a living, breathing example of what God wants for every single one of us. But so often we settle to just look like everyone else, to live just enough better that no one talks about us. Jesus said this. He said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. We're to be that bright light illuminating what the Lord has done in our life. It's not about us, guys. That's the beautiful thing about what we're talking about here. It's just about allowing God to show through us the light that we receive from God to affect other people. And then Paul goes on and he says, this is going to require some additional tools. So we've got to be willing to lay aside some things, things like sexual immorality, things like conversations that are not appropriate. We didn't even talk about that this morning because we don't have time. But he said, you shouldn't be telling dirty jokes and and talking in vain and empty ways, right? The Bible tells us every word we say is going going to, we're going to have to give account for it. But rather, you're to be people that are walking in light, that are carrying with you the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you're also going to need to pay attention. Because as wonderful as this sounds, it's not just as easy as choosing not to do these things and start walking with the Lord. Because we live in a world where Satan is still around and we're still weak people. And Paul says, hey, you're going to have to be wise. I don't know how many of you guys ever messed with boats much. You know, I kind of like boats. And a few years ago, I got a sailboat. And before that, I always had power boats, right? And then on a power boat, you got the, the steering wheel or the tiller back there, and, and, uh, and you steer the boat, and the power kind of goes the same. But I got this sailboat, and the first time I took it out, um, I, I, I knew this, but I didn't know this. And I was in a very, very tight kind of location, and I was trying to go slowly. Now, a sailboat works a little different. You got a little kicker motor on the side, but it just goes in one direction right there. And you've got a rudder. And you, you swing the rudder, and the rudder kind of catches on the water and it moves the boat. But one of the things that you have to have is you have to have a combination of two items to steer that kind of boat. You have to have power, but you also have to have steerage. You have to have direction. You have to have a rudder. I came into a really, really tight little spot. I didn't have enough power. I'm steering as, over as far as I can go. My boat's creeping. My boat just runs smack dab into another boat. Didn't do any damage. They weren't there. They had bumpers out, thank the Lord. Um, but uh, just slid right into them. You know why? Because I didn't have any power. But it's equally as dangerous to go and ride in a boat where you have all kinds of power, but you don't have steerage. And Paul said, a Christian needs both. We've got to have the power, but we've got to have the direction thing figured out as well. Look what he says in verse 15. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul tells us three things really quickly this morning that we need to do if we're going to walk wisely. And he says, hey, guys, don't just stumble through life, right? Some of us, some of us joke about that. I hope none of us really do this, but we're like, hey, you know what, whatever. Just kind of roll along. If I had a nickel for every time my mom said, watch where you're walking, I would be rich. 
And some of us just naturally do that. But Paul is reminding us the stakes are way too high to just stumble through life. Because when you stumble through life, you're going to hit. You're going to hit a, a stumbling block. Put there purposely by Satan to trip you up, to damage your witness, and to steal your light. And so he says, walk as wise, not as unwise. And the first thing he reminds us of is that our time is not of infinite quantity. He says, use your time wisely. Be careful then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. I don't think I need to tell you this morning. If you're a younger kid here today, guys, I'm going to tell you what all the old people are going to tell you in life. They're going to tell you time goes fast and just gets away from me. It does. You don't realize how quickly time flies. We were joking about it in the opening this morning, but it's not really a joke. What happened to September? Think back to September. What did we do in September that's going to make an eternal difference in somebody's life? We just spend our time, don't we? And we never stop to think about where would God have me spend that and how am I investing it? We're so caught up and kind of providing for the needs and the things that we need in this world, and I get it, they're important, but Paul said, hey, guys, I have to make tents sometimes too. But use your time wisely. Be intentional. There's a lot of little intentional things that we can do every day if we're thinking about them that can make a big, big difference. It's interesting as Jesus gave the Great Commission, he said to the apostles that are gathering there, as you go, make disciples of all nations. He recognized that these guys were gonna be going in a million different directions, doing a lot of different things. But he said, as you go, keep this in mind, your job wherever you are, is to be a witness and to make disciples for Jesus Christ. Wherever you go, you're to be the light that attracts other people to the light. Secondly, he says, to do your best to understand what the will of the Lord is. Sometimes, guys, we, we look at a situation and there's no black and white for it. There's a lot of things in the world that don't have a book, chapter, and verse attached to them. And sometimes we struggle, and that's okay. That's the way God once it. He said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He wants for us to get into the Word. He wants for us to go to Him in prayer. He wants for us to struggle in the Spirit to understand the direction that God would have us to go. Those are things that God calls us to do. Paul said, do your best to understand what the will of the Lord is. Later on in the, God, in the epistles, one of the writers is going to say, you know what, we're, we're kind of arrogant. We say, you know, well, someday I'm going to go to this city and I'm going to do this or that and we're going to make money there. He said, you don't even know if you're going to have tomorrow. Rather say, if the Lord wills. That's a great statement to make. Lord willing, I will do X, Y, and Z. It's a quick reminder to our own mind that we are here on his time, not ours, and for his purpose and not our own alone. And then lastly, he says that to walk carefully, we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. This isn't, a command, this isn't a suggestion, church. This is a commandment. He said, do not be drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. There's a lot of things that we, that we tend to allow to have influence and control of our life. Alcohol is one of them. Drugs are one of them. We live in a world today where there are a million vices and new ones that come out all the time. And part of the reason those things get pushed on us so much is there's a lot of money that's involved in those things, isn't there? And whether it be in the, in the legalized market or the illegal world underneath, people are making money and they're pushing those things. But guys, in every situation, those are just empty band-aids to bigger problems. Apostle Paul said, hey guys, don't settle for a cheap imitation because Satan loves cheap imitations. He loves to give you something that's going to provide pleasure in the moment but pain in the long run. That's what he did to Eve, right? He said, hey Eve, check out the fruit. And she saw, man, it kind of looks good and I would be wise like Jesus, like God. That would be awesome. She didn't realize in the end it was going to come back to bite her and every generation of her offspring as well in ways that she couldn't even imagine. So often when we allow substances to have influence or control on our lives, they do the same. They offer and provide maybe some short-term relief to, a, to the heartache or to the hurt or to the challenge or to the pain, 
But in the end, our brain is working behind the scenes to chemically balance things out, and we end up feeling far worse in the end than we did in the beginning. And Paul said, hey, I don't want you to be putting up a synthetic patch over the problems of your life. Why don't you just allow yourself to be under the influence of the Spirit? Because God isn't going to just cover things up. God's going to fix the pain. God's going to help you overcome the challenge. God's going to help you to work through the rough patch. That's what the spirit of a living God does. We are all under the influence of something. Paul said, don't put yourself under a chemical influence. There's never occasion that I can think of where, where you wake up in the morning after having done something God calls you to do and think, man, I really regret that one. Now, you might regret it in a moment. There's been a lot of things like that where God kind of said, no, this is how you got to do it, Jason. I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. You do it in a moment. And then on the backside of that, you realize that was a perfect thing to do. I'm so glad that I did it that way. That's likely. Guys, we're called, commanded to be filled with the Spirit. What that means in reality is that we're controlled by the Spirit. So how do we get filled with the Spirit? Well, we allow God to take control. We give in. We give up. We say, God, my life is yours. That's the thing that we agreed to when we became Christians, but sometimes we forget that. We often say, well, I gave my life to the Lord on, and we kind of fill out the day of the month and the year, and, or month, week, and year, whatever. Um, month, day, and year. There we go. Uh, that we gave our life to the Lord, but in reality, in the back of our mind, we didn't give our whole life to the Lord. No, we held back parts of it, the painful parts, the ugly parts, the challenging parts, the pleasurable parts. Paul said, I'm challenging you to give it all. Are you aware of a sin that you're harboring in your heart right now? Probably some of us are. Probably most of us are. What are you doing about that? Are we constantly yielding our, the control of our life to Christ's control? Or is, are we constantly fighting to allow him and his plan to lead us? Are we seeking to deepen an under, our understanding of his word and his plan for our life? Is our life changing to look more like Jesus' example every day? To be filled with the Spirit results in some pretty special things. And Paul finishes off with that. A lot of people get distracted by that last part because it doesn't seem to fit with the rest of it. But Paul is describing the effect of a life that is under the control of the Spirit. He said, that dark and empty and anxious and broken person becomes someone very different, a person that is full of praise, a person that's full of thankfulness, a person that's able to submit to other people in their relationships. All those things are what we truly want in life. We just want to wake up in the morning. I was just talking to a, 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 a good friend of mine, a younger man that, uh, before service, and he said, you know, Jason, when I live my life for the Lord, I wake up happy in the morning. That's what we want, right? Not hungover, but happy. That's what God wants for us, right? Paul is saying, hey, guys, don't buy the cheap substitution. Hang tough and demand on real life change. As we close this morning, I want to close with a passage of Scripture we skipped over. Skipped over it because I, it's sometimes kind of confusing. People look for it in the Bible because Paul said, as, as we know and as it is written, depending on your version of the Bible, and people are like, where, in this is, where is this written? And the best we can come up with is this is some kind of a hymn or a chorus that the church in Ephesus and maybe other churches sang. But in the middle of the text there, Paul writes these words, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There's a lot of us this morning that probably understand what Paul is saying right here. Because there's a lot of us that, if we're honest, we've kind of fallen asleep in a sense, right? We, 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 we haven't recognized all that God wants to accomplish and to do in our life, and we're kind of asleep at the wheel. We're like those drivers that are driving in the middle of the night at 2 or 3 in the morning. We're present. The car is still going down the road, but we're not really there. We're not focused on the direction. We're not necessarily alert to danger. 
We're just going through the motions of being a driver. You and I have probably all been in that category before if you've driven a car. And we can all honestly say that we're not at our best. And some of us have made some very, very dangerous decisions in that state. Paul says, wake up. <laughs> wake up, O sleeper. Arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Imagine that your house is on fire and someone hollers from the neighborhood, hey, 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 guys, wake up. Your house is on fire. You're not in charge of the waking up, but you're in charge of the getting up, right? You're in charge of waking up the rest of your family and getting everyone out of the house and seeking safety. Someone else awoke you. You might remember in John the 11th chapter, Jesus had been asked by three, well, by two close friends to come to their home. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived in a little community outside of Jerusalem by the name of Bethany. And their home and their, their family was a place of refuge for Jesus and the apostles as they would often make trips from the more rural areas up by Galilee. They would come into the city of Jerusalem and they would take that short journey back to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house. It was around their table. They had shared many meals. It was in their front room of their house that Jesus had taught the Bible and opened the word of God for a lot of people. And so it was somewhat surprising that when Jesus was told that his good friend Lazarus had fallen ill, that Jesus chose to wait for several days before he decided to make the trip to Bethany. And probably the apostles thought, well, it's too dangerous to be there. And it was dangerous for Jesus to be there at that time. But after a few days, he said, come on, we need to go because Lazarus is asleep. But what he wasn't telling the apostles is that Lazarus wasn't just sleeping. Lazarus was dead. By the time they got there, Lazarus had been dead for several days. And, and, and Martha comes out and she's a little frustrated with Jesus. And she says, hey, why didn't you come? My brother would have been healed. Jesus, Jesus ignores that what if question because there's nothing that ever good that comes from a what if question. He weeps there when he sees the sorrow and brokenness that the passing of Lazarus and the pain of sin and of death has inflicted on this world. And he says, show me where you've laid him. And so they take him there to the graveyard. And there in the graveyard is a grave and a stone has been rolled past the door of that cave because Lazarus, who was once a loved one, is now dead. And guys, in reality, we're all right there with Lazarus. We're dead. We're dead in our sins and our trans transgressions, the Bible says. The wages of sin is death. Jesus said, roll back the stone. And at this point, the sisters start to argue. Hey, Jesus, he's been dead for several days. He stinks. I hate to say this to you blunt this morning, but if you're living in sin this morning, there's a part of your life that stinks. When that sin gets bad enough, when that death gets real enough, you might be feeling people start to push you out and block you away. It's easy to blame the people who have blocked you away, but Lazarus was in the tomb because he was dead and he was stinking. And you can't keep that at home anymore. Jesus, I don't care. Roll back the door, the stone. If Jesus says it, they do it. So they roll back the stone. And Jesus shouts into the darkness of that grave and he says, Lazarus, come forth. Here comes Lazarus stumbling out of that tomb. He's all wrapped up, you know. He comes standing, stam stammering, stuttering out of the tomb. And Jesus, like, unwrap the guy, man. He's, he's dressed for a funeral, and this is a day of celebration. They unwrap all these strips off of him like something off of a scary Halloween movie. Guys, Lazarus was not in charge of the wake-up call. That was Jesus' job. Lazarus was simply in charge of answering the wake-up call. This morning, Jesus is crying out to us from the words, from his words in Scripture to wake up, to recognize that the consequences of our choices are not just affecting us, but they're affecting other people. And if we're struggling with sexual immorality, if the content of our speech and conversations doesn't bring glory to God, if there's greed in our life and we want things that we don't need and don't really have a desire for, we just want because we want, if our priorities are out of order, Jesus is saying to us today, wake up, wake up, Jason, and let me come and shine on you. Let me come and shine through you.
There's a dark world out here, guys. I don't have to tell you about the darkness. And what they need is to see Jesus. And probably the only place they're going to see that is through you and through me. This morning, if you've heard that wake-up call and you recognize, and what, I need to get things squared away with God. I've never done that. I need to have my sins washed away in baptism. Please come. Maybe there's a secret sin in your life that's holding you back and you need to sit down and talk with somebody about that. There's a bunch of us here that want to talk with you. I think Mr. Jody's the only elder that's left in this service, but he's right up here. He's not going anywhere soon, right? We'll be happy to sit with you. Find some maybe a brother or sister that you trust within the church family and say, hey, we need to get together this week. We need to have a conversation. My story needs to change. I want to be the light. I want to be the hope that God has called me to be. Church family, if, if you would, please stand. And if you have a need, please come as we sing together. that are more than just the lyrics of a song for all of us. There's a passage found in Matthew, the 22nd chapter of a parable that Jesus told of a group of people that were invited to the wedding feast of all wedding feasts. It was a wedding feast of a king for his son, and he wanted everyone that was anyone to show up there. But when it came, day, it came the day for the great celebration, all those who were called, refused to come. All those who had the position and power and prestige were no longer interested in showing up. And yet the banquet, banquet was prepared, the day had been set, and so the, the master of the banquet said, hey, I want you guys to go out, I want you to find people wherever you can find them. Find them underneath the roads, uh, road bridges, find them in the ditches, in the highways and byways, bring them to my feast. That's exactly what they did. They went out and found all the broken, all the hurting, all the people that had challenges in their life, those who didn't think they were too good, too proper, too right, too proud, too smart to show up. People that look like us. People that had brokenness and sin. But he wasn't just going to bring them in to that wedding feast like they were. The thing about God is that He loves us, and He loves us just like we are, but He loves us way too much to leave us like we are. And to each attender that came to that wedding feast, He gave them a brand new set of clothes. Wedding clothes were pure and white and holy. 
But there was one man who said, no, I'm good. I'm fine. I don't need your wedding clothes. My clothes are just fine. I let him have a seat. But when the master came in and surveyed the room, that one man stood out like the sorest of thumbs. He said, why didn't that guy get wedding clothes? And they said, he didn't want the wedding clothes. He said, get him out of here. Guys, today we have been given an opportunity that we should never forget. We close our service every Sunday by partaking in these two emblems that Jesus introduced to us 2,000 years ago that have been a part of their ceremonies for a 1,000 plus years before, a, a piece of unleavened bread and a cup of juice. And Jesus said that was an old covenant before the Passover that they were celebrating, but this is a new covenant. It's going to be written in my blood, that body that will be broken for you and that blood that will be shed for you. And this time of communion will be a constant reminder of what you've received from me. I stand before you this morning as broken as any one of us. But as I stand before my Heavenly Father today, I can stand there with confidence, not because of who I am, but because of who He said I am. Because of the garment of righteousness that He has provided for me to wear. In His sight, I'm pure and holy and white. Every Sunday, we, we end remembering that it was at the price of the body and blood of Jesus that that forgiveness and that invitation was purchased. So this morning, we'll, we'll do the same. We'll break that bread and remember that the body of Jesus was broken, although it, he had no sin. We'll drink that small cup of juice that reminds us that the precious blood of Jesus washes us and everyone who calls in the name of the Lord clean. Let's pray together, church. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the son that you sent into this world. We thank you for his sacrifice and his willingness to be our righteousness. Lord, we, we aren't righteous. We want to be better. But Lord, you have made a way for us to stand before you in the presence of your frightening holiness and to be your kids because you have put your son between us and you. And Father, today as we partake of these emblems that remind us of his sacrifice on the cross, we do this remembering him. We also remember, Lord, that at our hour of greatest need, when we cried out to you, when our sins were washed away through the waters of baptism, you gave us a clean life. And you gave us your spirit to fill us, to empower us, and to strengthen us, to live for your glory. Help us to do that this week. We pray all this in Jesus' name.